Module 2 in this series of lectures focuses on the literature of slavery and freedom from 1746 to 1865. In addition to discussion of the background, historical context, and conflicts, four major writers of the period, Phyllis Wheatley, Ulada Equiano, Harriet Jacobs, and Frederick Douglass, will be discussed. During this time period, the prevalent idea used to justify slavery in Europe and America was that slaves, and people of African descent in general, were naturally unintelligent, uneducable, and only fit for slavery. Then-famous European philosophers such as Frederick Hegel, Immanuel Kant, and David Hume reinforced this perception with their theories of racial difference. In America, the wide-ranging assumption among Enlightenment white Americans was that blacks were incapable of the highest forms of learning and were therefore fit for enslavement. This is where Phyllis Wheatley's writing is most relevant. With the stroke of her pen, she challenged and overturned these enlightened assumptions. As Henry Louis Gates Jr. explains, with a pen in her hand and a book in her name, Wheatley became, inevitably, a point of contention for others. Enslaved in America, Wheatley grew up in a fixed and prejudged position in a white social order. She was alien, the dependent, the talking chattel. But sometime in her teens, Wheatley decided on her own to add to the list of her predetermined social identities a new name, that of a poet. Ever since that decision, the question of how to interpret and evaluate Wheatley the poet in light of her prejudged status has been problematic. Her writing constituted indisputable proof of genius, and thus subverted and reversed Enlightenment prejudices and assumptions. Another prevalent notion about slavery at the time was that slavery was a civilizing and providential instrument of conversion to Christianity. This is the basis of the term white man's burden. Then there were pro-slavery advocates who perceived slavery and slaves as both an economic necessity and a positive good, as property and cheap labor for plantations and domestic work. Most held the false impression that slavery was not a terrible practice, that it was a fundamentally benevolent institution, a type of feudal living arrangement wherein slaves were well taken care of in exchange for labor. Those who championed and wrote extensively about these pro-slavery arguments included George Fitzhugh, writer and social philosopher, William Gilmore Sims, a novelist who published over 80 books, William J. Grayson, a poet who published The Hireling and the Slave, Henry Hughes, lawyer and writer, Edmund Ruffin, scientist and secessionist who wrote The Political Economy of Slavery, or The Institution Considered in Regard to Its Influence on Public Wealth and General Welfare, Thomas Dew, Professor of Pol Political Philosophy, and James Henry Hammond, a politician. All of these writers and many others combined to write the collection of essays titled The Pro-Slavery Argument as maintained by the most distinguished writers of the southern states, 1853. Opposed to these views were anti-slavery abolitionists who were vehemently against slavery and fought for emancipation. So entrenched were these prevalent ideas and opposing views that first attempts at emancipation of slaves in the Declaration of Independence failed. Thomas Jefferson provides insights into the causes of this failure in his autobiography. He says, The clause, too, reprobating the enslaving the inhabitants of Africa, was struck out in complacence to South Carolina and Georgia, 
who had never attempted to restrain the importation of slaves, and who, on the contrary, still wished to continue it. Our northern brethren also, I believe, felt a little tender under those censures, for though their people had very few slaves themselves, yet they had been pretty considerable carriers of them to others. What would have been the likely result if this section had not been removed from the draft of the Declaration of Independence? Would the American Revolution have succeeded? These rhetorical questions show how entrenched and divisive notions about slavery were. The literature of slavery and freedom, especially slave narratives, added impetus to the abolitionists' cause and sought to correct erroneous views about slavery. Its quest was freedom from slavery. Slave narrative may be defined simply as retrospective accounts of experiences of slaves and former slaves. Many assert that it is the first milestone of African-American literature, and H. Bruce Franklin goes even further to say that it is the first genre ever produced in the United States of America. This probably is true because much of the mainstream American literature at the time imitated British and European literature, and therefore was not original. It is not until about 1837, after Ralph Waldo Emerson in his The American Scholar, made a sort of intellectual declaration of independence and advocated literary nationalism that a distinct mainstream American genre emerged. Slave narratives may be categorized into three types. The first, the type we will be focusing on, is the authentic slave narratives. These were attested narratives written by slaves or former slaves themselves. The phrase or subtitle, written by himself or herself, was often added to the title of such narratives to bear witness to authorship by a slave. The second type is a narrative written with the help of amanuenses, and the third type is the kind recorded after emancipation and based on ex-slave interviews by government workers. In addition to these types, the American Civil War is also used to divide slave narratives into either antebellum slave narrative, that is, written before the war, or post-bellum slave narrative, written after the war, and emancipation, or neo-slave narrative, what the critic Ashraf Rushdi defines as contemporary novels that assume the form, adopt the conventions, and take on the first-person voice of the antebellum slave narrative. As the word narrative suggests, slave narratives use prose to tell stories about slavery. They focus on important events, episodes, and experiences, and draw on memory to reach out into the time past to recall what happened to a slave, or ex-slave, or to someone else. In a way, the narrative memorializes the events, placing them not just in a particular historical time, but also communicating an important message about the horrors of slavery. While many believe, perhaps erroneously, that the narrative form of discourse is the simplest kind of writing, it involves a complex combination of processes that reflect higher forms of learning. As will soon be discussed, one must recall events, employ skills in evaluation to select important episodes and details to include in the narration, organize these events into a meaningful whole, and interpret and analyze them to make a cogent statement or argument to accomplish its purpose, that is, the need to abolish slavery. What is commonly referred to as the rhetorical triangle may be used to illustrate this important characteristic of slave narratives. If the subject of the narrative is the horrors of slavery, and its stated purpose is the need to abolish slavery, what events and episodes do you think the narrator will include in the narrative to make this point or argument? Who do you think the intended audience would be? 
and how will the narrator try to persuade and move the audience to action? These questions involve not only the what, but the how as well. By the how, I mean the use of rhetorical forms of appeals to reason, emotions, and ethics as exemplified by the diagram on the slide. These logos, pathos, and ethos appeals are foregrounded in the narratives to move readers to action, to effect change. Narrators often referred to the Bible and Christian discourse to make an ethical or moral argument. They exposed the ironies and anomalies of slave owners who perceived themselves as pious, devout Christians, but nevertheless treated their slaves cruelly, both physically and emotionally. Most episodes were sentimental and fostered powerful sympathies or pathos for the plight of the slaves. Most of these were directed at the addressed or intended audience, mainly abolitionists and sympathizers. In addition, cogent arguments were presented in the narratives to counter erroneous Enlightenment assumptions and pro-slavery arguments. For example, most narratives included the phrase, written by himself or herself, to bear witness to the intellectual and literary genius of people of African descent, and to advocate for emancipation. These traces of refuting Enlightenment assumptions and pro-slavery arguments invoked these readers of the narrative as opponents of and audiences in a great debate. Olada Equiano, Frederick Douglass, and Harriet Jacobs, the three authors we will discuss to illustrate slave narratives, all state their purpose and implied audience in the prefatory materials of their narratives. For example, Equiano states that his chief design is to excite in his readers a sense of compassion for the miseries which the slave trade has entailed on his unfortunate countrymen. Jacobs also states her purpose as an attempt to expose the wrongs inflicted by slavery and to earnestly arouse the women of the North to a realizing sense of the condition of two millions of women at the South, still in bondage, suffering worse atrocities. All three use the journey motif to give a picaresque account of their flight from enslavement and bondage to freedom. Their narratives showcase engaging storytelling skills, illustrative of battle between villains versus forces of good, dehumanization of slaves, quest for freedom, flight and pursuit, pathos of loss and separation of families, betrayal, and eventual triumph of the protagonist. Iquiano's journey motif foregrounds and contrasts pre-colonial African life, society, manners, and customs with New World life and society. Why? Evidently, he foregrounds these to overturn negative stereotypes, what L.K. Bamer calls double cleaving, a cleaving from, moving away from colonial definitions, transgressing the boundaries of colonial discourse, and, in order to effect this, cleaving to, borrowing, taking over, or appropriating, and foregrounding, the ideological, linguistic, and textual forms of pre-colonial African traditions. What this double cleaving creates is a hybridity which proliferates differences and turns degrading stereotypes and identities into positive representations. In the narrative, Equiano journeys from pre-colonial African culture to Western culture, where he encounters the people and machine technology of the West, what he calls elements of wonder, such as the slave ship, iron muzzle, the clock, and talking book. What is the purpose of this contrast of cultures? He also journeys from African oral literacy to Western written literacy, from ignorance of Jesus to knowledge and acceptance of Jesus, from African to Anglo-African, from the young Olada in Africa, who is captured and sold into slavery, 
to the grown-up who was renamed several times and who later gained his freedom, became a writer and abolitionist, and called himself Olada Equiano or Gustavus Vasa. Why these elaborate contrasts? Apparently, Equiano journeys and moves from an earlier slave object self to a later adult author-subject self that writes or narrates the story. He moves from a self that was like that to a self like this, an author, abolitionist, and assimilated self that advocates for freedom. His narrative mirrors two-ness, a double consciousness of two distinct voices and selves, the adult narrator who writes, and the younger, earlier self that is written about. In chapters 2 and 3 of the story, the young Aquiano is terrified and filled with astonishment when he sees the slave ship. He thinks he has gotten into a world of bad spirits, of magic. He asks if they were going to be eaten by those white men. He is afraid of a clock, and when alone, he had often taken up and talked to a book and put it to his ears in hopes it will answer him, and has been very concerned that it will not talk to him. At times he is shown as crying and wishing for death. How do you think the adult Aquiano, who writes and narrates the story, feels about these incidents? Is he also crying and wishing for death? Certainly not. He probably is laughing and shaking his head in disbelief. What is the rhetorical significance and effects of this age differential and tunis? Frederick Douglass, our next author, thematizes a similar journey motif in his narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. He uses a chiasmus to divide his narrative into two, to show how a man was made a slave and how a slave was made a man. Trace this journey of how a man was made a slave, as well as how a slave, according to Douglas, was made a man. Note how the main plot and subplots all work together to communicate the narrator's representation of the dehumanization of slavery and his quest for and attainment of freedom, dignity, and success. His plot follows Benjamin Franklin's blueprint of rags-to-riches story of the self-made man. To some extent, it is also similar to a Horatio Alger tale, except Douglas's story is about the incredible odds stacked against one born into slavery, but who nevertheless beats the odds to gain freedom and success. Thus, the characterization and conflict focus on the narrator's personal development as a dynamic character. Likewise, the various settings communicate the journey motif as well. Douglas moves from rural south, the plantation, to the city to live with the Alds, where he gets a taste of literacy and develops a hunger for learning. Unfortunately, he gets a new slave master who finds him unmanageable and sends him downriver to be broken by the notorious Mr. Covey. His suffering, despair, and death wish at this place led to his famous apostrophe to the moving multitude of ships to and from the Chesapeake Bay and to his resolve to fight Mr. Covey. Finally, he escapes to the north where he gains his freedom. Like Equiano, Douglas uses the first-person point of view to create two-ness and dualities that thematize a journey from Bailey, his slave name, to Frederick Douglass, the name he adopts when he gains freedom, from child-slave-object to free adult narrator, from self-then, a slave, to self-now as a free person, from a personal, private individual to a public narrative voice that uses the autobiographical I as a collective representative I of the story of millions of slaves in need of emancipation. What are the effects and importance of this two-ness? 
How do these two-ness and dualities often result in irony, satire, allegory, humor, and tensions? How does Douglas use what Robert Septo calls syncretic phrasing to bridge the gap or divide between these two-ness and dualities? One can argue that every element of the narrative works together as economically and powerfully as possible with every other element to accomplish the central theme of journey from slavery to freedom. It is a first-rate story that illustrates what Aristotle calls an organic whole, a story in which all parts are related to and essential to the central theme. Like Aquiano and Douglas, Jacobs employs many of the slave narrative conventions, especially the journey motif. She, however, focuses on sexual oppression within slavery, as exemplified by her argument that slavery is terrible for men, but it is far more terrible for women. What arguments does she use to support her claim? Critically consider them. Do you agree with her? Why or why not? Here are other important questions to ponder. What are the similarities between her and the male authors? Unlike Douglas, who fought and beat Covey, how does she use her sexuality as a weapon in her fight for emancipation? Is it okay for her to do so? She argues that she tried unsuccessfully to preserve her purity, but the condition of slavery confuses all principles of morality and, in fact, renders the practice of them impossible. To her, the slave woman ought not to be judged by the same standards as others. Do you agree? How is escape or freedom depicted by Jacobs in contrast to the representation of escape and freedom in male slave narrative? For Jacobs, she is never free unless and until her children are free. According to Jacobs and Douglas, the institution of slavery dehumanizes both the slaves and their owners, both men and women. How does it corrupt that receive standards of conventional family morality? Essentially, both authors depict slavery as double dehumanization and decivilization of both blacks and whites and their progress. Jacobs concludes that her journey and story ends with freedom, not in the usual way, with marriage. How does this gendered statement differentiate her narrative from those by Douglas and Aquiano? In sum, Jacobs's narrative expands the genre of slave narratives. She adds a gendered perspective. She redefines the concept of freedom for mothers and women in general. She shows the ways in which slavery challenges and redefines ideas of purity, piety, domesticity, and submissiveness, and she makes a direct appeal to readers not to subject the female slave to the standards of true womanhood, the then moral standard of chastity. To summarize this presentation, the authors we have studied all wrote during or after slavery to demonstrate not just their intellectual competence, but their journey from slavery to freedom to membership in the free human community. They used their writing as a weapon to fight for and win freedom.